Greetings and welcome to episode 17 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we are finally going to talk in depth about women, gender, and the family in Chinese history. All right. Obviously, it goes without saying, this is an extremely important topic throughout history. You know, slightly more than 50% of all living human beings have been women. Um, unfortunately, most of the historical records, things that were written down, and even a lot of the, the actual material evidence that survives from the past was either written, preserved, or created by men. Um, and so it's just by default, the views and perspectives and the agendas of men are way overemphasized in the historical record. And so it took a long time. Uh, well, first, it took a long time for people just to think that it was important to study the history of women's place in society. And then once they decided that that was important, it took even longer to, un- to figure out how to study a interest group, a group of people for which there was scant records available or for which almost everything that we have was written by a man. Now, that's not all the case. We do have things that were written by women and preserved and whatnot, or created by women. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's minuscule when you take the entire uh, package of historical material that we have to work with. Okay. Um, now, specifically women in East Asia. You know, most people are familiar. Um, India and China are some of the countries where you'll find the greater gender imbalances in which you'll have significantly more men, maybe 120, 130 women in some villages, uh, uh, 120, 130 men for every 100 women in some places. Uh, why is that the case? Well, because uh, uh, baby girls are often killed, okay? Uh, infanticide is going to be much higher for females than it will be for male, reflecting a very just fundamental uh, gender bias. Um, not only that, if a uh, 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 Female suicide, okay, um, is also extremely high. I believe uh, studies uh, regularly show that I think China actually has the highest rate of uh, 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 suicide of women anywhere in the world. All right, now that is just the situation with regard to East Asia with China, okay, but historically that has always been the case, okay, uh, life was always much harder for women than it was for men. And this does not just go for China, this is for all around the world, or at least anywhere where you find a sedentary, urban, uh, highly stratified society that has that, that produces a lot of material wealth. Okay? Um, women get a much more raw deal than men everywhere in the world. Okay, throughout history, you can pretty much just take it as a truism that it was worse to be a woman than it was to be a man. And when I say worse, I mean in the treatment that you receive from other people and the opportunities available to you, how, how, how the range of opportunities of what you could do with your life. I don't mean, you know, intuitively it's better to be a man or a woman throughout history. I have no idea. I only know what it's like to be a man. It might be wonderful to be a woman. Uh, regardless, your treatment all right, your life opportunities, what you can do in this world uh, was, you know, it was always better in that sense to be a man than it was to be a woman throughout history. That said, some places where it was much worse to be a woman than it was in other parts of the world. Uh, down the line, when we start talking about some of the first Chinese diplomatic envoys who visited Europe in the 19th century, um, one of the first things they're going to be astonished at is the visibility of women in Europe. 
um, and the fact that women are present in diplomatic functions. Uh, they're always around. You can always see women. There are statues of naked women in museums and palaces, and they were just shocked by this. It doesn't mean that women had it so much better in Europe than they did in China, uh, but it does mean that in Europe, women were much more visible, probably more visible than in any other sedentary, complex civilization anywhere on the face of the earth. And that came as a shock to the Chinese who saw this. All right, well, we're going to talk about, you know, these ideas about the visibility of women, what women should be doing, what they might actually be doing, okay? Um, and we're going to touch on some of the more fundamental aspects of gender and women's place with relation to their family, okay? So you'll be well-equipped to do readings and think about other issues uh, that involve gender in East Asian history, okay? Now, I say that there aren't many records that were written and preserved by the hands of women. However, women were a perennial subject of elite male commentary. All right? Uh, educated men, who almost by definition are going to be elites. They're going to be wealthy. Because to get an education, it's not, it, it, it wasn't free like it is today. You had to pay for it. You had to take someone out of manual labor and pay for their education. That's very expensive. Not many people could do that. So elite male commentary, those who wrote records um, about women, they had a lot to say. Okay, so we need to work through the categories that educated men had whenever they discussed issues that involved women. All right, and then we're going to try to try to you know pick through the facade after we establish what men said about women. All right, let's begin with relations between men and women. All right, it was seen as self-evident. This is not complicated, all right? It was seen as just self-evident that women are inferior and subordinate to men. Okay? And therefore, all men had an obligation to discipline and guide the women who were either on an equal status level to them or of lower status level th than them. All right? And the only times that a woman should have contact with a man is if that man is related to her, either by blood or by marriage. Okay? Otherwise... All other forms of contact between a man and a woman were viewed as inappropriate for the woman. Not necessarily for the man. The man can get away with a whole lot of stuff and never be tainted. Women are the ones who have to be careful. Women are the ones who, if they make one misstep in the eyes of the men around them, they can be scarred, they can be tainted, their reputation can be tainted for life. Okay? Outside of marriage... And outside of your birth family, there are no forms of appropriate or legitimate relations between unrelated men and women. Okay? Now, what about within marriage? There were conventions of what was expected to, be, uh, uh, to happen when, women came, when girls came of age and they were going to be married off. When does a girl get married? Alright, this might come as a shock to us. Because very often women, well men too, but women even more so, were married off at an extremely young age. Okay, you could be 
betrothed to someone at birth. Right? That was very common. You actually are betrothed to someone at birth. But the actual marriage itself, in which you physically go into someone else, your husband's household, his family, that, that actually could happen as early as 11 or 12. Okay? Basically, puberty. All right? Because the idea was, is that once a woman goes through puberty, she is capable of being tainted by inappropriate contact with stranger males who are not her future husband. And that will irrevocably taint her, her chastity, for the rest of her life. Doesn't matter if that actually happened or not. All that matters is that the men believed that about the women in their lives. Once our daughter goes through puberty and the effects of an illicit liaison or sexual relations with another man could become evident in the form of pregnancy, you need to get her married off as soon as possible to make sure that negative consequences don't result. Okay, so the patriarch has the unquestioned right to, des- to decide the particulars of the marriages of the women, his daughters, in his family. Okay, now there was an ideal. There was an ideal that women should not be as young as 11 or 12. Absolutely. That was seen as too early by many of the elite educated men who bothered to put their thoughts on paper. They said, hey, it, would be, it actually would be ideal to wait until they're older and more mature, both intellectually and bodily. 16, 17 would even be appropriate. Okay? That's just the ideal, though. That's just the, you know, the liberal ideal. If you're out in the countryside among a bunch of poor, illiterate people, those girls are getting betrothed, you know, almost as soon as they can walk, and they're being physically married off to another family, by 11, 12, or 13, okay? And once you're married off, you can expect to be, you know, in a succession of pregnancies, one after the other, until you either die in childbirth, or you are no longer of childbearing age, right? Dying in childbirth was actually a fairly common way for women to meet their end. It was also believed, ideally, that there should not be a huge age gap between husband and wife, okay? You know, don't marry her off. Don't marry a 14-year-old girl off to a nasty old 70-year-old man. Okay. Now, if this was the ideal, ideals are put forth and put down on paper because they're ideals. And that means we rarely measure up to them. In other words, the reality was much different. The reality fell far short of that ideal. It was common for girls to be married off at 11 or 12, and it was common for them to be married off to 70-year-old men. Okay. Now, there are two ways to marry off your daughter. You could either do it by a bride price or a dowry. Now, what is the difference between a bride price and a dowry? A bride price is basically, it represents the sale of a daughter to compensate for the expense of having raised her. All right? A bride price is what poor people ask in exchange for their daughter's hand in marriage. All right? Um, It's reimbursement. It's compensation 
for the trouble you've taken for the past 12 to 15 years of feeding and caring for this girl who now is going to leave your family permanently. She's gone. She belongs to her new family, her husband's lineage. She no longer belongs to yours. All right, she may visit, and oftentimes the men don't like her to visit as often as she does, but she may visit her natal family. But gradually, as the years wear on, she is supposed to acknowledge that she is no longer part of that natal family. She belongs to her husband's family now. All right, and if she comes from a poor family, very likely her parents received a bride price in exchange for her. A dowry is basically the opposite of a bride price. A dowry is a status symbol that wealthy families have. A dowry is a, you know, money and goods and possessions that a woman takes with her into her marriage. And these things continue to belong to her. Okay? And if the marriage ever dissolves for any reason whatsoever or she moves on, she takes that dowry with her. It belongs to her. Now, clearly, this is something only wealthy families can do because you're receiving essentially nothing monetarily in exchange for the expense of having raised a daughter who you're now giving away. Okay, so a dowry is a status symbol of wealthy families. They are announcing to the world that we can afford to throw away money and resources on a departed daughter and make sure that she has her own possession, her own amount of wealth in her new family when she is no longer attached to us in any formal way whatsoever. Okay, not surprisingly, a woman who went into a marriage with a dowry would tend to have a little more leverage in her own welfare as a result because she has access to a, you know, a degree of wealth and possessions that cannot be divested from her. All right, so clearly she is going to have a little more leverage. Not, Don't overestimate how much leverage she has. She's still a woman. But she'll have a little more leverage in her welfare than a poor woman would have who contributed nothing to the marriage other than her future childbearing capacities. And not only that, her family had to be paid for her to go into another family. All right, a woman like that is going to have a lot less leverage, a lot less power in her new family than someone who comes in with a bride price. But bride price versus dowry, it's really just an issue of class. It's an issue of economic class. Okay. Now, once you're married, a woman's place was to believe to be inside the household. Okay. And there were fine distinctions in the Chinese language here. Uh, they distinguished between what was known as the clan and the household. The clan was the zong, the household was the jia, alright, and the jia, the family, the household, was where a woman would be allowed to exercise what we might refer to as male authority. She's in charge. Within the domestic sphere, she was allowed to be in charge. She manages the daily household budget, she cooks the food, and, and you know, buys the food, prepares the food. She raises the son. Vast majority of the raising of the sons is going to be done by the mother. If you have a little more wealth, she will manage the servants. Or if you don't have any wealth, she'll be in charge of all the younger family members and their household duties and tasks. Okay? But she was in charge in the domestic sphere. She managed, she oftentimes would manage the money, the finances of the family as well, both those of her husband 
and those of her kids. One of my favorite quotes come from, comes from a book that I often assign to my classes in the 20th century, Daughter of Han. Uh, it features a woman called Ning Lao Tai Tai, Old Lady Ning. Um, and she is being interviewed in the 1920s and uh, 1930s by a foreign missionary, and then her life story is put down on paper. And at one point, she talks about how her duties towards her son's wages changed when he became married, when he got married and was independent. She said, quote, my son is now independent. He can make enough to support his family. He is independent and does not need me. As soon as he was making enough to support himself and his wife and his children, I ceased to control his wages. I gave them over to his wife. What a fascinating phrase. I mean, a fascinating couple of sentences right there. I ceased to control his wages. But old lady Ning didn't then give control of, his son, of her son's wages to the son. She said, okay, I'm done controlling your wages. Now it's time for your wife to control your wages. At no point does the man control his wages. The actual daily handling of that money, the outlay of cash, was usually handled by the woman. Okay. It was said that the job of a woman is to facilitate male success. That's a very nice way of thinking about it. A woman's highest calling in life, a woman's highest aspiration in the eyes of the men around her, okay, her highest calling in life would be to facilitate male success. Now, if there's any truth to that whatsoever, that that was actually how it, how things operated, not any truth that that's what a role of a woman really should be, uh, but if there's any truth to that, that women may have bought into that ideology, then the success of men then was predicated on the invisible success of women, the invisible labor of women. All right, the labor of women was supposed to take place within the household, the one place where she's allowed to exercise male authority and be in charge of people. All right, now, the household was very different than the clan. The Zong, the clan was the abode of men. The clan was your public face of your family to the outside world. All right, the clan has maybe a small ancestral shrine in which sacrifices and rituals are paid to male ancestors. A clan will manage a uh, family genealogy in which all the illustrious men in the family, their biographies are noted. Okay, Women don't appear in the genealogies usually at all. If they do appear, it'll just be, you know, Mrs. Wong. All right, and that's it. Her surname isn't even recorded. I mean, her given name isn't even recorded. All right. The clan is what men manage. All right. It's the public face that the rest of the world sees and interacts with. The household is where the woman is supposed to be in charge, but that is behind the scenes. So in this sense, you can see a woman's influence is potentially quite large, although it's going to be an influence that is largely invisible and largely unacknowledged, at least by the other men. Okay. Now, what about within marriage? Okay, relations between a man and his wife. Well, there was no expectation that there was supposed to be any of this ridiculous stuff that we refer to as love today. Okay, there was no sense that marriage was predicated on love. What an absurd idea! Everyone prior to the 17th century, everywhere in the world, would have said, What an absurd idea! That this thing that we call love, the most unreliable, 
the most fleeting, the most mysterious, the most unpredictable emotion that human beings have ever known, you're going to use that as the basis for the most important social institution of our world, i.e. marriage? You've got to be kidding me. That would have been the response of almost every educated person. Anyone, not even educated. You don't have to be educated for this. They would have said that's absurd. Okay? You arrange a marriage in order to further the economic and political opportunities of both respective families. If you are poor, marriage is to try to you know, increase the number of in-laws that you have so you can all look after each other. And you, can have, you have more people you can call and support with. We're thinking from the parents' perspective, not the kids who are getting married, okay? If you're rich, marriage is about furthering your political and economic opportunities. You want to have a strategic marriage with a good family who brings new benefits and opportunities for your son's careers or, you know, with the careers of anyone in your family. All right? That was the purpose of marriage for almost all of human time. It's only very, very recently that we have this idea that marriage should be about love. And that was an absolutely absurd idea to pretty much everyone throughout human time. All right? Not that love wasn't important. They acknowledged there was this emotion called love, passion, whatever you want to call it. They said that it had very little place in marriage. In fact, it could destabilize a marriage. Many parts of the world, they would even say that, you know, the passion of love, the sort of obsession that it leads to, is unhealthy for a marriage. Because a marriage, you have a lot, it's, there's a job to do. You got a family to raise. You got kids to raise. You got money to make. You know, 90% of the population is one bad harvest away from starving to death. Love's not important in that context. You want to stay alive. Love. Give me a break. Now, it was believed that after marriage, it would be nice if affection rose up between husband and wife. Wouldn't that be nice? Of course that's nice. But that was just seen as sort of like a fringe benefit, a bonus. Affection is a bonus, they would have said. But it's not necessary. Okay? You don't have to be gaga over each other. We put you two together because we consulted a matchmaker who said that this would be, you know, a relatively harmonious marriage and successful marriage and further the ambitions and livelihoods of all people who are connected to this marriage. And the matchmaker consulted the almanacs and the stars and said, you guys are not going to kill each other because you aren't, you know, incompatible. You're, you are compatible. So we, we, we decided to marry you guys, arranged marriage, and, you know, it'd be nice if 10, 20 years down the road you guys actually, you know, liked each other. That'd be nice. And that's it. Now, within marriage, obviously some stuff's going to happen, okay? Relations between man, uh, husband and wife. It's not equal. Remember Shunzi. Shunza says there's no such thing as equality anywhere in the world. The world cannot function with equality. Certainly marriage was also seen to be the exact same way. There's no equality between husband and wife. It's a husband's duty to discipline and guide his wife. Even if the reality is, is that she might have been, she might have been 
the rock in the family, you know, the source of stability, the one who actually held it all together while the man went out and got drunk all the time and gambled away the family fortunes and smoked it in opium, even if that was the reality. The ideal was that the man's in charge and he guides and disciplines the woman. Okay? And also, marriage also implies sexual consent to your husband. Okay? That was one of the most important purposes of a marriage is to have kids. And because this is the old days, you could expect to have, you know, 80% of all the kids you're going to give birth to are going to die. Infant mortality is off the charts until just a few hundred years ago or even just a hundred years ago. All right, it's insane. The goal of a marriage, first and foremost, is to have sex, get pregnant, and then raise your kids to adulthood so they can get married, have sex, and have their own kids, and the family line continues. That's the most important thing. One of the things that you see Chinese commentators dreading the most is the extinguishment, the extinguishing of a family line. That was a tragedy when there's no more male heirs. And the family line can only be continued through male heirs. Okay? So, you can forget about the idea of rape within marriage. That would have been an oxymoron. No such thing. Of course, a woman is obligated to have sex with her husband for the sake of procreation, in theory. And the husband also had the right to discipline his wife physically. Now, there was the ideal that he should only do so within reason. When he disciplines his wife for whatever reason, he should do so within reason. All right, now within reason is a moving target, <laughs> interpreted in different ways in different centuries. All right, in the old days, within reason simply meant anything short of breaking a bone. The legal statutes of various Chinese dynasties actually had a law on the books, Zhe Shang, to you know, break a bone. Basically, in physically impair your wife to the point where she can't perform, you know, normal daily activities. Household labor. Okay, now if that ever happens, if he goes too far and breaks a bone or, you know, physically impairs her, then in theory, again, he can actually be punished for that. You know, she can't go to court herself, but she could find a male relative, an uncle, a brother, you know, something who can take her husband to court. And he could be punished like that. Now, did that ever happen? <laughs> I've never seen a case in which that actually happened. All right. Uh, you got to be, it's got to be, you know, a pretty toxic family situation for a woman to publicly take her husband to court through the intermediary of another man who is not her husband and then shame him publicly and make a scene. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're right on the verge of divorce if you're going to do that. All right. So that's one of those rules where even though it's on the books and it sounds great that the man is actually accountable in reality, the man is not accountable. Okay. And physical abuse, you know, it's hard to quantify. Do I want to say it's common? I don't know if it's common, but let's just say that was the ever-present context against which marital relations between husband and wife played out. Both sides knew, no matter how affectionate they might be to each other, no matter how much they liked each other and got along, even in the best-case scenarios, both sides knew that if push ever came to shove, oh, what a horrible way of setting this up, if push ever came to shove, he could resort to physical violence against her and almost certainly would suffer zero consequences for having done that. 
Okay. And we see if you start, you know, reading court cases, which are absolutely fascinating, entire transcripts of court cases from Chi- from Chinese history, um, you'll see that even though these are the ideals, um, you know, the reality is much messier. We often do see court cases in which we find out that wives are refusing sex to their husband. Okay, and they weren't always beaten as a result. Okay, there was a certain degree of initiative that a wife could take. On the other hand. They also knew how bad it could get. There are other court cases in which the, the case appears in court because a wife refuses to have sex with their husband. Relations are already bad in other areas of their life. And she ends up dead. Okay, that happens too. And yes, the husband is going to get the legalist automatic death sentence. But very likely it's going to be commuted. Okay. Very likely, even the, a husband who kills his wife, if he can show that the wife was not doing her wifely duty in the eyes of the men who run the legal system, uh, very likely his sentence will be commuted and he will not be executed for having killed his wife. Okay, if he can show, you know, that the wife insulted his his mother, her mother-in-law, you know, whatever it might be, she wasn't doing household duties, she was lazy, whatever it is. Okay, he can impugn her character, and very likely, even though he has an, an initial death sentence because the legalist statutes require it, the Confucian idea of mercy will come into play. All right. Now, when and where should you see women? Women, ideally, were supposed to be segregated from men. Again, something that uh, only the wealthy could really achieve. So they should be segregated from men and confined to women's quarters. <laughs> That's all nice and well if you're rich and you have a mansion with 25 rooms. Um, if you're poor, if you're a poor peasant, then you have one room that everyone crowds into. And there's no possibility whatsoever of having a separate women's quarter. But nonetheless, the idea is, is that the most important thing that a woman has, the, the, the value from which a woman's worth is calculated, is her chastity. It's her chastity before she's married, and it's her sexual fidelity to her husband after she's married. That is where all her value in society comes from. All right? It stems from that initially. And if she transgresses those ideals, that she is supposed to have no sex with anyone before marriage, and then after marriage, she can only have sex with her husband if she transgresses those. Her, 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 her worth in society plummets. She'll be seen as a tainted, immoral woman. So the men said, the men around her said, it's for the women's own good. It's for our daughter's own good. It's for our wives' own good. We are prote- protecting their chastity and their public reputation. And by extension, the reputation of our family. We're protecting them. By confining them, by cloistering them, by trying to make sure that they have as little contact with strange, unrelated men as possible. Okay? It was said, there was a saying, that when neighbors ask, they inquire about a potential bride, a little girl down the street, and they think, that might be a good marriage material for my son, and they start to ask about her, what is she like? When neighbors inquire about a potential bride in the neighborhood and no one knows anything about her, that's great. If it's really hard to find out any information about a 10-year-old girl from all your neighbors and all the people you can call on to investigate, then that must mean she is chaste. 
Rest assured, she has not been tainted. And yes, she is then good marriage material for your son. Okay, so women should not be seen or heard, ideally. But again, the reality rarely meshes with this educated elite male ideal. An 18th century Chinese administrator, Chinese official, once said, quote, he was railing against the, what he referred to as the lax morals of his day. He says, quote, why is it that social practice has become so lax? Women walk about the streets barefaced with no sense of shame whatsoever. Young women take sedan chair trips to holy sites in the mountains or go out in the evening to stroll in the moonlight. Worse still, they go on pilgrimages to temples, burn incense, and engage in collective worship. Monks and local officials think this is a laughing matter on festival days that go to mountainside temples and spend the night, and their husbands don't even view this as inappropriate. Such is the state of the debasement of popular mores. Alright, now, grumpy old men like this tend to overstate their case and engage in a lot of hyperbole and exaggeration, but nonetheless, that statement gives you some sense of how the reality of women's need to be up and about and doing things and wanting to do other things that, you know, would take them out of confined, inaccessible quarters does not mesh with the educated male ideal. The reality was that the poorer the family, the more their women had to be out and engaged in economically productive work. Okay? You can't sit in the house all day. The fields need to be tended. Groceries need to be bought. Stuff needs to be, you know, brought into the house. The woman has to go out. The poorer you are. Now, the richer you are, that's when you start cloistering your women. And it was very rare to see the wife of a rich man. This is something that Europeans, when they started traveling to China en masse in the 19th century... They would often comment on this. They, you know, they would see very few wives of Chinese officials. And whenever they got a glimpse of them, it was this precious moment. And they would write about it back home. I saw a Chinese woman, an elite Chinese woman. Because the wealthy and powerful Chinese were really, really good at making sure that their women were not seen by any men outside of their immediate family. Because the more strange men who lay eyes on your wife, the greater the rumors will be that she has relations with them and has compromised her chastity and her fidelity to her husband. Okay. And what about when your husband dies and you're a widow? Okay. Well, this is actually an interesting topic. There was a cultural ideal of a chaste widow who refuses to remarry after the death of her husband and instead devotes herself solely to the care of his patrimony, his line, his sons. Okay? This was the ideal. That after a husband dies, the wife does not get remarried. In, in, in essence, she preserves forever. For the rest of her life, she, prever- she, she preserves her husband's sexual monopoly over her body and still regards herself as being married. Her husband is simply dead. She's simply married to a dead man now. And all of her interests in life are taken up with caring for his male progeny. Okay? In fact, this ideal was so well ingrained that there were court cases in which a woman 
who she is if it, it, when she is the one who is responsible for the death of her husband. She, maybe she killed the husband or arranged for her lover to kill the husband. If it then turns out that there are no relatives around to help take care of the remaining kids, the judge sometimes will commute her death sentence, even though that's the most heinous crime in the world for a wife to kill her husband. The judge sometimes will commute her death sentence because he'll say, it is more important that the male descendants, your son, be raised to adulthood than it is to put you to death. And therefore, we're going to spare your life so you can continue to look after the, the sons of the man whose death we think you are responsible for. Okay? So that was one way, actually, in which um, a widowed wife um, could get leniency from the state. Now, again, in reality, it was very difficult to be a chaste widow. Okay? It was very difficult. You, you, you basically had to be rich, or you had to have money and resources. Okay? There was a lot of pressure to remarry. First was the pressure of your in-laws, your dead husband's brothers. Okay? They think that the inheritance which you've received from your dead husband, all of his property and money, by right belongs to the larger male clan of which they're a part. And they're going to want to get access to that. Okay? What's one way that your greedy male in-laws can get access to the wealth, if you have any wealth or property, that your dead husband has left you? Well, you try to uncover evidence that the widow, your sister-in-law, has had sex with someone else. Okay? If you can do that, you can accuse her of adultery to her dead husband. And then she's kicked out of the lineage, she loses access to her kids, and you get all of the resources of your dead brother. Okay? If you didn't need to go that far, there was no sexual misconduct, you could also just encourage your widowed sister-in-law to remarry. Okay? If you could encourage her to remarry and help her arrange a new marriage, then she would also, again, forfeit her right to all the resources and children of her first marriage. And it would all go to the brother-in-laws. Okay? Because a woman, when she gets married, she has to go into that clan. She's a part of that clan. She leaves her previous life behind. All right? This is why divorce um, in the old days was something that was very much dreaded by most women. Okay? Divorce and then remarriage, you know, it taints you as a woman. It doesn't taint the man. It taints the woman. She's seen as not being faithful to one man in this life that the stars arranged for her when she was young. Now, by far, the greatest pressure to remarry, however, was not in-laws. For most people, the greatest pressure to remarry was simply poverty. Okay? And it's why a lot of people in all... all all times and all places stay in unhealthy, destructive marriages because they cannot afford to get out of it. All right, if you're poor, if you're trying to survive and your husband dies, doesn't matter how great your relationship is with him or how horrible your relationship is with him. You have to pay for his coffin. He might have debts that need to be settled. 
There's a funeral, perhaps. Okay, and you've got mouths to feed. And now you've just lost, lost potentially half of the income of the family, maybe more. All right. What's your solution to this problem if you don't want to if you don't want to starve? The solution is to find a new man who brings in an income and can take care of your kids even if you have to give your kids to your brother-in-law. Okay? It's better than death. It's better than starving to death. So for most people, remarriage is just an an an, ec- an economic survival strategy. They have no choice. That said, if you're a woman and you want to create the ideal Living situation for yourself, okay, if you decide, I don't really need a man in my life, all right, what is the best situation that a woman in Chinese history could have? Well, you are married to a man who has some resources, all right, maybe he's not rich, but he's definitely not dirt poor. He has some property, some income, all right, he's comfortable. Now, what you want is you want him to die young, (laughs) all right, you want him to die young, preferably in his 20s. You inherit everything because you are legitimately his wife as long as you maintain your sexual fidelity to him. doesn't mean you have sex with a corpse. It means that you don't have sex with anyone else ever and you don't get married. And you devote your life to to, to, to looking after his kids, i.e. furthering his male patrimonial line. And if you do that, the state will recognize your right to manage and access all of your dead husband's wealth and property. And your in-laws, no matter how badly they want it, cannot take it from you unless they are able to, you know, catch you having sex with another man who is not your, your husband, who, who is, happens to be dead. All right? And if you don't do that, and they don't catch you or whatever, then you're in the clear. The state will recognize you as a chaste widow. They might even, have, they might even commend that. If your husband dies in your 20s and you live another 50 years and you never get remarried, you never commit adultery... The state oftentimes in your 70s will commend you as having been a chaste widow. They might even make a chaste widow shrine to you. Or, you know, give you a a supplement to your income as thanks. For being such an exemplar of female chastity and purity. And devotion to the men in her life. That is the ideal scenario for a woman in Chinese history. Who goes through the route of marriage but doesn't see any particular need to be under the constant domination of a man for her entire life. Okay, Uh, you're, you're comfortable, he dies in his 20s, and then you have access to his resources for the rest of your life, and everyone extols your virtues. They praise you for having been faithful to that one husband. Okay, education of women. Can women be educated? Well, if you don't have many resources, again, let's look at this in class perspective. If you don't have any resources, educating your women is just a waste of your resources. Okay? They can't become officials. They're, they can't really go out into the public sphere, at least not all the time, and to the extent that they need to, to be a successful merchant or whatever it might be. Okay? Only a man can do that. Only a son can do that. Only a son can train for the civil service examination system. Only a son can go out and have, you know, business negotiations that go all night long in bars and tea and tea cafes. All right? So you want to prepare your son for those interactions to be successful in life. So if you're poor and you only have a little bit of money, you funnel all that money into your son, the oldest son, preferably. Okay? Now, again, 
If you're a little bit wealthier, however, and you've already provided for your sons, however many sons you have, well, then you can think about educating your women. And by educating, we mean spending money on them. Okay? Women were thought to be, you know, overly compassionate, indulging, simplistic, naive, and innocent, but they were believed to have the same common humanity as men, and thus also capable of, tr- of being transformed, to use the, Confu- the Confucian parlance, transformed through education. And it was actually thought, if you have the resources to educate uh, you know, with the women in your family, that in the end will probably be good for the rest of your family. They'll raise better kids, because an educated mom can raise better kids, and she'll be a better manager of the household. Because she's more educated. She's more morally superior than other women. Okay? So, you know, in the end, the men are still the ones who are seeing the education of women as being a benefit. You know, if we educate our women, it will benefit the men in turn. They will be better able to facilitate male success. Okay? But still, even if you decided to do this, you're not going to educate them in the exact same way that you educate your sons. Alright? They will get a a circumscribed version of a classical education. Ideally, they'll be educated by other educated women and not men. And you'll give them a training in poetry, usually. All right? They'll be introduced to the Confucian classics and, you know, the place of a woman and all that. Uh, but as far as what they're actually going to produce themselves with their own ink pot and brush... Uh, women are not going to be encouraged to write essays. That's a male thing. You know, essays are about policy and philosophy and, you know, the way the world is and should be. That's a male domain. What was a female domain? Well, if a woman's going to be educated and she wants to produce something with that education, let her produce poetry. Poetry was seen as appropriate for women. Okay? It doesn't have such blatant political applications. Okay? And so you do see especially as you get in the late imperial era, you know, the Qing dynasty and whatnot, uh, you know, 17, 18, 1900s, uh, you start to see more and more female poets. Okay, these are almost, these are always going to be the daughters of rich and powerful men who have the resources necessary to, you know, spend it on their women because the, the sons are already taken care of. Okay, importantly, education should not lead to a public role for women. Okay? It should only increase their ability to facilitate male success. It should not instill in women a desire to have a public male role outside of the household. She's better able to take care of the kids, run the family finances. Okay? But this should not convince her that she's, you know, official material to actually be a Chinese magistrate. Okay? Or a mayor. You know, or whatever, uh, you know the warden of a city block, whatever, you know, some sort of, some sort of position of public authority. All right. She should not be deluded into thinking that this is now her right because she's been transformed through education. You transform your, the, the women in your family in a modest sense, just enough so they can make the men around them better and then to produce some poetry, which is harmless. So that said, how could a, a, a woman gain a route to power? Okay, how could a woman pursue her own selfish agenda? And I don't mean selfish in a bad way, I just mean her own agenda. What she wants to do, not what the men around her want her to do. 
How could a woman do that? Okay, she's not supposed to have a public role. She's not supposed to have, a, you know, be in a position of authority. Here's how you do it. This is, you know, the, the, the book of strategy to plot your way to power if you're a woman in pre-modern Chinese history. Many places throughout the world, actually. This isn't just China. First, you got to give birth to a son. Without that, forget about it. Okay, you have to have a son. A woman is not viewed as an autonomous adult with leverage of her own until she has a son. Now, once you have a son, a woman, a wife, will increase her standing within her family's, within her husband's family. Okay, she has provided security in old age for everyone in that family by giving birth to a son. Okay? This is her source of leverage now. It is also one of the only things, in, living things in this world, the only other human relationship in which the mom has significant control. Okay? A, a, a mother will be the primary point of contact with her son from the moment he's born, you know, and for the next 10 years of his life. Okay? She can form a bond, an emotional bond with that son that gives her, I don't want to make this sound like a negative thing, but just, you know, control, influence, influence is the word, influence with her son that no one else has, okay? And she can use that to further her position within her family. What I'm getting at here is a son provides for their mother in this sort of a society a rhetorical smokescreen to pursue her own interests in the name of a son, a woman is not allowed ever to say, I want to do this because I want to do it. Never. That is never allowed. A man can do that. A woman cannot. A woman has to say, I want to do this because it is in the interest of the men around me. And you can say that on behalf of your husband, on behalf of your father-in-law, on behalf of your brother-in-law. But you only have so much influence over them because they're adults with their own loyalties and their own relationships independent of you. With your son, you can do that and you can ensure to a very high degree of certainty that your son's going to be on board and not betray you. Because you have influence with him cultivated from the day he was born. Okay, so that is the value of a son. He gives you a rhetorical smokescreen to pursue your own interests in his name and yet he's not going to cross you. He's not going to contradict you and say, wait, that isn't really what I want to do. No, because he's seven years old and you had influence over him since he was a baby. That's the value of a son. And whenever you see women get into high positions of power in Chinese history, it's because they pursued that route to power. They spoke on behalf of their son, who they had a high degree of control or influence over. Empress Wu Zetian during the Tang Dynasty. The only woman ever in 3,000 years of kings and emperors. The only woman ever to assume the title of empress. How did she do it? Well, her husband has to die at some point. Right? You have to have that. Uh, but then she speaks, she rules in the name of her son. The son is supposed to be the next legitimate emperor. But he's too young. So you rule on his behalf as a regent. And then maybe he dies. And you switch to a nephew. 
Okay, that's what uh, uh, Cixi, Empress Dowager Cixi did in the 19th and early 20th century. Never actually took the title of Empress for herself. Ruled through her son, and then her son dies. And then so she rules through her nephew. All right, pliable young men in whose interest she can speak on behalf of in order to pursue her own agenda, what she wants to do for her sake. But at the moment a woman says, I'm doing this because I want to attain wealth and power for me, that's the opening that the men around her need to take her down because she's not looking out for the interests of the men around her. She's not facilitating male success. She's facilitating her own success. You have to maintain this delicate facade that it's all about the men, not about you. You're selfless. You're altruistic. This is what Empress Wu Zetian, this is where she stumbled. After something like 20 or 30 years of ruling as a regent in the name of young men over whom she had control, she then said, to hell with this. I'm going to create my own dynasty. <laughs> and she abolished the Tang dynasty and created her own dynasty. Now that's too much. That was an opening for men to marshal support against her and say she's gone too far. She's no longer saying she's ruling in the interest of men. She's ruling herself. And the dynasty lasts like 10 or 15 years at the most, and it's overthrown and the Tang dynasty is restored. Empress Dowager Cixi in the 19th century, she learns from Empress Wu Zetian's mistake and never actually you know, declares herself to be empress. She's just the Empress Dowager. All right, the old gray eminence who speaks on behalf of her son, nephew, whatever, and yet in reality still wields actual power. Okay, also having a son, if we're not talking about the realm of politics, you know, and high elite intrigue and whatnot, if we're just talking about, you know, poor families in the countryside, uh, also what a son does is it puts the daughter-in-law on equal footing with the mother-in-law for the first time. Okay, because the mother, you know, this is a famously tension-ridden relationship in Chinese history, Chinese literature and whatnot, the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law. It's not easy anywhere in the world, but it's, you know, very famous, famously uneasy in the Chinese context. Previously, when a, when, when, it, when a new wife enters a family, the mother-in-law will see the childless or the sonless daughter-in-law as one of the few subordinates that she can push around. All right, she can speak on behalf of her own son. Okay, but he's now a grown man. He's like 20 or 30 or 40 years old. There's only so much you can speak on behalf of him for. The daughter-in-law, you can abuse, exploit as much as you want if you're the mother-in-law and she moves. She's in your family. She's in your household. Physically, she's right there. And she doesn't have a son to give her leverage and standing and power in the family. It's another reason why the wife wants to have a son as soon as possible. It's going to give her leverage over her mother-in-law to stop pushing her around. Now, talk a little bit, we're almost done here. Let's talk a little bit about foot binding. What is foot binding? Well, I'm going to be honest with you straight up. We don't necessarily know, you know, everything that we would like to know about foot binding, where it came from, why it was done, and why it was abolished. We, we, we can tell you when it arose. It arose at some point in the 10th century AD, sometime in the 900s. Okay, and it seems like it began, uh, ironically, paradoxically, with dancers. You know, the, uh, dancers who were doing some, some sort of practice like this for the imperial court. And then it was seen as something that was attractive, something that was a sign of elite status. And the women in the Song Dynasty were some of the first elite women to bind their feet. Okay. 
Um, and then we know it ends at some point in the 1940s and 1950s, depending on what part of China we're talking about. Okay, well, right now we're living in an era in which within another five years or so, the last person with bound feet is going to die. Okay, there are still a few, however, especially if they were living in the countryside in the 1930s or 40s. Now, what is foot binding is often referred to as surgery without a scalpel. Begins very young, five years old. Okay, and it's something women did to each other. I'm not blaming women for doing it. I mean, obviously the men wanted them to do it as well. Um, but nonetheless, the whole actual process of foot binding was something that a mother did to her daughter. It wasn't the dad doing it physically. All right, the mother binds the daughter's feet. And for several years, it's very painful. Okay, uh, you have stories about how girls would cry out in pain at night, all through the night, because their feet want to grow. And they're being crushed together by the tight bindings that will not allow them to grow. You're trying to push the toes underneath the heel of the foot. It's disgusting. If you ever see pictures, go on to Google and type in foot binding and whatnot, and you'll see pictures of what it looks like. The foot itself is, is hideous. Nonetheless, once you bind that foot up and hide the ugliness, uh, you get this tiny little, you know, four or five inch foot. It waddles around the place. It makes the person who is on those feet seem very delicate, very frail, very vulnerable. Right, for out, for you know, the last thousand years of Chinese history, the female foot was considered the most erotic part of the female body. Right, you think maybe Europe, maybe it's breasts or something like that. In the Chinese world, it was the foot. Whatever, whatever part of a woman's body you hide from men, you're going to make a fetish out of it. Okay? You're going to make a fetish out of it for them, and they're going to see that as the erotic part of the body. All right, and only a husband was ever supposed to see bound feet outside of their uh, bindings. Okay, um, you know, people often would ask when they're looking for marriage material. They wouldn't ask how pretty she is. Usually, the first thing they ask is how small are her feet. That was the erotic zone. Okay, now who else did this? Well, we know elite women did it. All right, elite Han women beginning in the 10th century, more or less. Okay. But then it spreads. You know, these fashions spread. When the richest and wealthiest people on, you know, your society do something, it's going to get prestigious. Other people lower down the social scale are going to say, ooh, if they do it, there must be something nice about it. Maybe I should do that. And then other people start doing it. And eventually it becomes something that's widespread throughout Chinese, throughout Chinese society. You want to feel sorry for someone, feel sorry for the peasant women who have various states of bound feet but can never really bind them properly because they still have to go out and work manual labor, work in the fields sell things on the street, whatever. They have to walk around all the time. And yet, they also are subscribing to the ideal of tiny little feet. Okay? Oh, they really got it bad. Now, there are other arguments that bind, bound feet among the poor people was a strategy to try and immobilize the women folk of a family so that they were not out and about, so that they would stay home and do manual labor, sewing, knitting, you know, creating peanut oil, whatever it might be, rope for sale. And this is an economically productive activity. Um, but, you know, there's lots of theories about this and lots of research. Um, it's still an area in which we're learning a lot about. What we can say is that at heart, in the beginning at least, and among the elite class that took the most care to bind their feet, Binding your daughter's feet was the female equivalent of preparing your sons for the exams, which we're going to talk about in the next episode. Okay? 
You're telling the world, I can take my children out of productive labor and still be just fine. All right, I can take my sons out of productive labor and sit them down with a tutor for 30 years of their life and I can afford that. I can take my daughter out of any ability to do productive labor whatsoever by crippling her feet and immobilizing her to the women's quarters. All right, you're proud of that. You're proud of the fact that your kids don't have to work and this is how you prove it to the outside world. Other roles for women. We'll conclude with these two roles before we finish up here. Religious roles. I probably mentioned this in an earlier episode, but just to make sure we cover it. Um, A woman had the right to run away from her family, join a Buddhist monastery or a Taoist temple, and become a Buddhist nun or a Taoist priestess. That was a state-approved, legitimate alternative to marriage, even if the families disapproved of it. Okay? So, it's it's, it's not only the case, as I suggested earlier, that the only route for a woman to have some form of autonomy without a man domineering over her is to get married and then hope her husband dies in his 20s. That's one way. Another way is to join a religious convent and become a Buddhist nun. Not only that, you could become literate if you joined a monastery or a Taoist temple. Because you have to read sutras, you have to copy them, you have to maintain the records. You know, these are little libraries. You have to become literate. So religious practitioners who were female would not only free themselves in theory, in practice, sometimes this still happened, but in theory, they could free themselves from constant male dominion over every aspect of their life. They could also free themselves from the threat of dying in childbirth. Because you're also not supposed to be having sex then, of course, or raising a family. You've, you've adopted a new fictive family, imaginary family, a, a non-blood birth family. Okay? And that family is not propagated by you giving birth to sons. Okay? So there was a precedent that women could reject marriage through a religious alternative path. Now, if you didn't reject that, one of your other fates, if you weren't a wife, would be to become a concubine. Okay, a concubine is something that no one willingly wants to become. Okay, if you if if you if you subscribe to the ideal of marriage, you say, yeah, I want to be married. I don't want to become a Buddhist nun or whatever. Um, then what you want to aspire to is to be the primary wife of a man. That is the most prestigious thing that a woman can get in this world. Okay. A concubine was the lesser wives that a wealthy man has to show off his status. First and foremost, a concubine is a reflection of the man's status. The greater the man, the more concubines he will have. Okay? It's as simple as that. Where do they come from? Oftentimes, they'll be courtesans who work at the local bar or tea house. Okay? Or they'll be from families who have a lower social and economic station than your own family. But because they want to associate and marry into a higher status family, they're willing to give away their daughter in a less prestigious, more shameful form and say, yes, darling, you won't become a primary wife, but this is a very powerful man and he, can, he might be able to improve our family fortunes in life if you marry him in a, in a, in a somewhat debased status. Okay. These are the two locations from which concubines will come. 
generally speaking, concubines do not come from, you know, families in good standing. Okay, you need to be compromised in some way before you would be willing to consider status as a concubine. Sex is, you know, not a major consideration of this, all right? You should know by now, if you're, I don't know, 18 to 20 or higher up, you should know that if a man is wealthy and powerful and all he wants is sex, he can get that outside of marriage, outside of formal relationships, okay? Concubines, sex is involved, but it's largely for procreation, okay? Oftentimes, I don't know if often, but sometimes, a man and his primary wife could not have kids for whatever reason. And because having kids is the most important thing in the world to continue the family line, the male line, and they say, well, we can have concubines. We can take in another woman for the purpose of giving birth. Okay? Now, sometimes there was no need for additional sons. The primary wife did just fine in that regard. But it was still believed. It was still believed that having a concubine was just something that rich men did. You could actually tell how wealthy and successful a man was by how many concubines he has. I've actually read works of literature in which wives are telling their husbands, now that you've made it, let's go find a concubine or two for you. Okay? Because you're a successful man. And I want everyone to realize how successful you are. And one way to advertise your success to the world is by taking a few more concubines. Concubines are expensive, though, and it introduces very often social tensions in the household. Understandably, you don't only really have to I mean you have multiple women who are having sex with the one patriarch now, and they all have kids of their own, and everyone is jockeying for position and status and wealth and inheritance. Okay, and sometimes love and passions and sex are all wrapped up in this as well. So not everyone, you know, not like everyone's always thinking really clearly about these sort of things, but material, material rewards are at stake. So the law got involved and it tried to regulate fine distinctions among the men. You could have one primary wife and you could have six or seven or eight or ten concubines. The emperor has thousands of concubines. That's what the harem is. That's all of his concubines. He has one primary wife. And if he has kids with her, they're going to be the ones in, you know, with the best claim to the throne after he dies. But then he's got a whole freaking harem of hundreds, thousands of women. Those are concubines too. They're all the daughters of people who wanted to curry favor with the emperor, but weren't of exalted social and economic rank to be able to, you know, marry their daughter as his primary wife. So they settled for a concubine and the benefits that they brought them, that that brought them. So the law gets involved and it says, okay, if we're going to have this many women in the family who are all sleeping with the, with the man and, and burying them kids and, you know, material economic incentives are at stake, we need to recognize that the primary wife is legally the only wife. The rest are concubines. All right. The primary wife is the only one who goes through the rituals of formal betrothment, formal marriage, has all the ceremonies. And all the stuff that comes with a formal marriage. She's the only legal wife. All sons from all other concubines are legally the sons of the primary wife. All right, think of that. 
So you become a concubine. You get to live in a rich household, most likely, or at least a more comfortable household than you came from, most likely. But all of your sons are legally the sons of the primary wife, not yours. She gets to decide their education, their marriages. She arranges all that. She's the dictator of the household, the primary wife. Doesn't matter how many concubines that are there. Now, what complicates all this is that the husband may end up having a more emotional attachment or, you know, a, a sexual passion, whatever you want to call it, various ways. Um, he may have a more special relationship, let's just say that, with the other concubines, not the primary wife. Now, that's when things get complicated because the law favors the primary wife in pretty much every aspect of their life. But informally, the man may show other favors and attentions to people who are not, to concubines who are not the primary wife. And that's where you get great literary theater. And in our own day and age, translated to television and movie entertainment theater. Um, and if you ever get into Chinese literature, you're going to see this is, you know, the backdrop for a lot of the great novels in Chinese history. Jin Ping Mei, Dream of uh, Red, 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 Red Mansions and whatnot. Uh, large elite families with tons of concubines and primary wives and sons and daughters from each one of these, all scheming against each other and fighting for the attention and the inheritance of the man. Okay? And don't think that this is an enviable position necessarily to be in for the man. If you're a man thinking, oh, wow, eight women and stuff, everyone's trying to get in your favor and whatnot. Uh, whenever you actually see these men uh, comment upon their domestic lives, usually they say, God dang it. <laughs> You know, this is this is irritating. Everyone's always fighting all the time. Everyone always wants a piece of me. And if I favor one person, then someone else is mad and pissed off at me. Uh, it's going to be very, very stressful. But that's what wealthy and powerful men are expected to do. Next episode, back to men. Sorry, we're going to go back to men and we're going to talk about education. No, only men we are going to be really have resources funneled into them for education. Education and the Chinese civil service exam system, the earliest certification regularized uh, uh, standardized test anywhere in the world, and it's not even close. It's about six, seven hundred, eight hundred years before the next one exists anywhere else. Hope to see you then. (laughs) 